Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everybody, Dr. Z, welcome to the show. Today we're gonna talk about abortion that's right nothing too controversial right alex no not at all (laughs) (laughs) so this is dr alexandra west alex if you're nasty she is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the university of connecticut and an expert in women's health and reproductive health and she so here's the story right alex we i had done a piece using doc vader as a mask to yes. talk about the Roe v. Wade uh, overturnment that might mm-hmm. be happening. And um, I put it out there and, you know, it was a little tongue in cheek, a little c- comedic because I'm scared to talk about those things because I'm a dude. Yeah. And uh, you wrote this really amazing comment because you're one of my supporters in our supporter tribe and you subscribe mm-hmm. and we have these live shows. And you wrote this great comment that was like, listen, I got a great sense of humor, I think, but like, this issue is something you really ought to talk about properly because there's medical stuff at stake here. There's bioethics. There's all kinds of stuff that the media never talks about. So you should talk about that. And I'm like, well, cool. Why don't you come on the show and we'll talk about it? And you were like, all right. And so here we are. So welcome. Thank you. So you were a dancer before you went to med school, right? Yeah, I was. So I grew up all over the country and um, I was a classical ballet dancer. Um, I did get paid to dance ballet, not on the pole. Um, and then, <laughs> I was going to say, when I said dancer, I had to, I, I was like, I hope she says ballet because otherwise yeah. it's going to get real. Yeah. Well, I mean, I probably would have made more money on the pole. So unfortunately I chose the higher art form. Um, but I um, had kind of suffered one injury, had surgery. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to college. I went to Tisch at NYU and dan- majored in dance and was a um, double like pre-med person. So I'm like a maskist and then um, danced in the city and taught yoga for a little while. And then um, and did some research and was a medical assistant and then had more injury. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to med school. I need insurance. So um, went to med school and then I chose obstetrics and gynecology. So just continuing with just really choosing easy things. Wow. So, so all, you did all the things. So basically you're like my favorite person. You did the arts with ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, you did, you, you did yoga instructing, which is mindfulness and meditation combined. Uh, and then you're an ob doc, which is a, traumatic trigger for me because my first clinical rotation was OB-GYN at San Francisco General, and I'm still mm-hmm. recovering from it. So yeah. this is kind of a, uh, you're going to bring the circle full and teach me about stuff that I think many medical people actually don't understand. And yeah. certainly a lot of lay people don't understand because abortion 
Um, you know, pregnancy termination has been such a politicized, it's got moral elements, it's got religious elements, it's got belief, it's got science. I want to focus a lot on the scientific and ethical elements around um, abortion. And I think you're the perfect person to discuss it. So let's just dive in. Um, why don't we start with, I mean, you know, where do you want to start with this? Because you talk about this with patients. You're, you're an expert in this. When you saw the Supreme Court leaked document, I mean, what what sort of went through your mind because you provide, you know, I mean, these services are important to women and medically necessary in many cases right. that people don't understand. So what was going through your mind? Right. So, I mean, we've seen a little bit of this already in Texas with the SBA legislation. We're kind of seeing how this is going to play out a little bit. Um, I'm really lucky to practice in a state where I can really practice the full spectrum of obstetrics and gynecology. So I am a general OBGYN. Um, we do have some excellent colleagues who have an additional two to three years of training in complex family planning, um, which does focus on either complex birth control issues and people who have medical problems, um, the ethical components that surround abortion care and also abortion care, especially the more difficult cases that go with that. But most um, OBGYNs or actually all OBGYNs are trained to provide um, abortion care, especially in the first and early second trimester. Um, so I'm very lucky that I can have that be part of my practice and I can support my patients through deciding about birth control, through an unplanned pregnancy or some kind of pregnancy loss, and then I can deliver their baby. And it's like really awesome that I can be there for my patients for their entire reproductive um, journey and not just one specific area, which is why I love my job and my specialty is the best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think like the important thing is, is to really understand that abortion care is part of comprehensive reproductive care. Um, and I think there's a lot of gray area. So decide some calling something a pregnancy termination in a situation where maybe the pregnancy is not going to continue, but there's a heart rate or deciding to choose pregnancy termination in the setting where there's a lethal fetal anomaly or the mother has a medical condition or a mental health condition. That's not consistent with pregnancy. It's not going to make pregnancy safe for her. Um, and then even managing miscarriage where these laws come in and they're made by people who are not obstetrician gynecologists and have no understanding of how this stuff works. It makes doing my job and providing the standard of care to my patients as dictated by ACOG, very challenging. Um, and I think that what's gonna happen to these laws with these laws is you're gonna have a lot of OBGYNs like put in really difficult situations um, you're going to have delay of care um, and you're going to have a lot of physician burnout and um, moral injury. Yeah. And, and I think what you kind of put your finger on is that there are people who know nothing about this stuff who are making legislation about it. And that's yeah. what's always bothered me. Like you can feel many different ways about pregnancy termination from a moral standpoint, from a religious standpoint, whatever. But the idea that there are legislators who don't touch patients who are making these laws and then folks like yourself who are actually with the patients. And there's a lot of nuance that you've already brought up in, in terms of how these things are done. So for example, I think what 45% of pregnancies are unplanned. Yeah. So you start with that number, which is really high. And really high. you talked about 
the 16 year old who, you know, uh, may get pregnant or the, even the 12 year old. Right. And, and so there's that component of it, but some of the things you pointed out were, you know, um, women who have an unplanned pregnancy who are really not either safe or capable of carrying that pregnancy to term, either because the pregnancy itself is non-viable or because they have medical conditions or other issues that make it very dangerous to not, mm -hmm. to possibly impossible to have a child. And so in the absence of the option to have a pregnancy termination, you know, what would happen to these women? So, I mean, it really depends on the situation and you can go through, you know, different, like various clinical scenarios that kind of demonstrate the gradient of this gray area. Um, so I think that if you start with, um, it's almost, I feel like it's almost best to start with like how, who gets pregnant and how do we date a pregnancy and what happens? Yeah. Um, so firstly, like you said, 45% of pregnancies are unplanned. Um, so why is that? So one is that access to birth control, depending on where you are is, can be a challenge, um, depending on your health insurance, especially after, um, there's a Supreme court case where, kind of overturned the Affordable Care Act's mandate that in health insurance cover birth control. Mm. So some people can't afford or access birth control. Um, some people have medical problems that make some of our more effective forms of birth control contraindicated. Um, so a really good example of this is um, birth control pills. So we have two kinds of birth control pills. So one that has estrogen and progesterone, and then one that has progesterone only. And the benefit of the estrogen is it makes it a little bit more user-friendly. If you forget a pill or you're a few hours late with that birth control pill, you're out with your friends, maybe you get a little drunk, you don't remember it until the morning, you're going to be okay if you take your next pill as soon as you remember. The progestin-only pills, you really got to take it at the same time every day. Um, but somebody who might have a history of blood clot, somebody who has hypertension, you can't give those people estrogen because there's an increased risk of blood clots, heart, heart attack, and stroke. Um, so that's a really good example of, even if you're using one of these new apps where you can discourse with a physician on the phone and get a birth control pill prescription, our, the more effective version might not be accessible to you. Um, and, and remembering that there's a huge equity issue here. So for, you know, we're talking about using apps and things like that, mm -hmm. but like somebody with, uh, you know, a socioeconomic status that is not consistent with having a high-end smartphone with apps and mm -hmm. things like that is already out of the gate yeah. um, at a disadvantage for this sort of birth control access, right? Yeah, they are. Um, also, pills can be very expensive and these pills have side effects too. So some people don't tolerate the side effects of birth control pills. Um, and then we have our highly effective method. So that's your LARC. So long acting reversible contraception. So that would be like your two types of IUD or your next blonde, which is the implant that goes under your skin. I kind of tell patients it's like a piercing. You can't see, um, it's, it's fantastic. It's 99% effective. All of these are 99% effective. Um, but it's very invasive to have an IUD placed. Some people don't tolerate the bleeding pattern. Some people have pain. Some people don't want something in their body because it creeps them out. And that's totally understandable. Um, you also need to be able to go to a doctor's office to access this. Um, so that's another example where we have highly effective methods of birth control, which are also at risk of being legislated right now, um, that not everybody can access or doesn't work for everyone. 
Yeah, no. And so, you know, <laughs> in the in the absence of that or where you're putting up legislative barriers to that, it's, mm -hmm. it becomes really difficult then to yeah. say, well, well, then what other options would women have if you can't have a pregnancy termination? Mm -hmm. um, the idea, again, is to reduce the number of pregnancy terminations <laughs> through good family planning. Mm -hmm. And you've already pointed out how that can be difficult. Um, yeah. Are there other issues around that in terms of... Um, and again, it, it does strike me as it's not fully equitable either, because there are a lot of women with um, a lot of financial means, et cetera, who can access these things, but others can't. Yeah. And and then to tell them now, well, okay, now you're compelled to have an unwanted pregnancy and bring it to term, et cetera. It seems it's a it's it actually speaks maybe speak to this for a second. This the the medical ethics around this. There's the idea of autonomy, justice, beneficence, not, you know, non maleficence. Can can you talk right. us through some of that when it comes to these issues? Yeah. So there's a, autonomy, right? So a, that's the idea that a person has the right to decide what to do with their body. So. And the way that I practice is I tell patients like, listen, my job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to figure out what's going on, listen to what's important to you and help you make a decision that's consistent with your wants, needs, desires, and your life. Um, and so that's, that's the best way I think to talk about autonomy. And then, so that already gets into, I mean, birth control, that's, that's how I talk to patients, right? I can tell them what's most effective, but if that's not what they want, it's not what they want. That's okay. Um, but now we're getting into a situation where maybe what somebody doesn't want is what they need because they have some other medical problem or there's something going on. Um, it's also, again, getting into like the idea of bodily autonomy. And I think that gets down to a rabbit down into a rabbit hole that it could be a whole separate conversation, right? Um, beneficence is helping a patient do what like good by them. Um, so helping a patient to achieve their health goals in the best possible way, right? Non-maleficence, not hurting a patient. And I think that as we get into this conversation, that's what makes this whole legislative nightmare very challenging as an OBGYN, because if you're taking an option away from me to offer a patient, I, I'm essentially, I can hurt them, right? So I'm saying, well, you know, you have your cervix is four centimeters dilated and you're 14 weeks pregnant, but the baby still has a heartbeat. So you're not septic right now. So I guess we just have to wait until you're septic or you pass the pregnancy. You know, you're, you're taking away the safest option I have to offer that patient. Right. Um, so in essence, your hands are tied and you can actually harm a patient because your options are taken off the table. Yeah. And, and so that's a non-maleficence and not hurting somebody, beneficence, trying to help them, autonomy, giving them control. Now, pe people might push back here from an ethicist standpoint and say, well, if, li if life begins at conception, then what about the ethics of the fetus? And how do right. you think about that? So, I mean, I think in that particular clinical scenario, so we call that a missed abortion or which is like a missed miscarriage. So also when you're in obstetric and gynecology, lingo. So if I say missed abortion, what I mean by that is you've had a miscarriage, the pregnancy is not viable, but it's still inside the uterus. Mm. So I can even see with some of these laws of just, if you look at somebody's notes and you don't really know what you're doing, you might misconstrue a miscarriage for, you know, an actual elective termination. Um, 
there, so there's that. And then there's also something called cervical insufficiency. And so cervical insufficiency is where um, your the cervix dilates and it's painless. There's no contractions, there's no preterm labor. And then ultimately, you know, people will either get infected, break their water, or go into preterm labor and deliver. And this can be devastating for women. So imagine a woman who has tried for years and years to become pregnant. She used IVF. She spent $30,000 to get this pregnancy that is highly desired. And then she comes in to labor and delivery at 15 weeks. And she's complaining of, yeah, I just feel weird. I feel pressure in my vagina and I'm having like, I'm having this like spotting and I don't really know what's going on. So, you know, you put a speculum in the vagina or you do an ultrasound and you see the cervix is four centimeters dilated, 15 weeks, there's membranes ballooning into the vagina. So in some circumstances, we can do something called a rescue cerclage, which is where we actually put a stitch in the cervix to try to keep the pregnancy inside until you get to viability, which in most states and circumstances we say is about 23 to 24 weeks. Mm. But in some circumstances, that's not a feasible option. And so now you have this woman who is devastated and you have to tell her that her highly desired pregnancy is that she's already carried for 15 weeks. So 15 weeks is what for five, almost five months, four months, no, three months. Um, yeah, I know. I don't think of pregnancy months. I'm Math hard is time. hard. That's why Long we're doctors. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a substantial amount of time, she's probably already told her friends and her family. And so in, in my practice, what I can offer her is three things. So one is I can say expectant management, which is where we watch and we wait and we see what happens. Um, the benefit of that is some people just don't feel like they can make that call or make that decision. And that's totally fine. Um, the risk is infection, sepsis, hemorrhage. Um, and then whether or not you send someone home or not. Right. So typically we'd keep somebody in house, but that's expensive and depending on their health insurance status, that, that might be something that's challenging for them. They might have children at home. They might have, um, you know, a job that they need to get back to. Um, so that's one option. Option number two would be to give them medication that allows their body to pass the pregnancy. Um, and it feels very natural. It feels like they deliver the pregnancy. And then option number three would be to take them to the OR and, and do a DNC, um, which is where we remove the pregnancy for them. And this is not a viable pregnancy. This is not a pregnancy that's going to have a good outcome or even an alive baby, but technically this is a pregnancy termination. There's a fetus with a heart rate. Um, and so what makes some of these bills challenging is that they're saying, well, if the life of the mother is, is at risk, then, then you can do a termination. Her life isn't at risk right now. It will be if she gets septic. Um, and that's going to make a DNC procedure way more risky for her. Um, and it's going to do things like increase her risk of hemorrhage, increase her risk of needing a blood transfusion, ICU admission, um, possibly a hysterectomy. Um, and it increases the risk that we create scar tissue in her uterus. It's going to make another pregnancy more, um, more challenging or impossible. So like, that's just one scenario, right? Of many. And, and so this is a scenario where by saying, well, we cannot do the termination until the mother's life is at risk, mm -hmm. what you're actually doing is putting increased risk to the mother's life 
in yeah. advance because you want to do that procedure when she's stable, before mm -hmm. she's septic, before things are hitting the fan. Mm -hmm. And you are unable to do that if they've legislated it that way, correct? Right. So now, now one thing, um, even just this idea of you know viability and all of that, and it may vary state to state, you were saying around 23 weeks, but even dating a pregnancy, which we were alluded to earlier, and then I want to come back to the, I, one thing I want to make sure I follow up on is the question about fetus versus mother from a bioethics standpoint, but going, going back to um, how do you even date a pregnancy? You know, this can be challenging, right? Yeah. So if there's legal limits on how to do abortions, how do you even know how, you know, so walk me through that. And is, is it also the case that in many cases, in, in a lot of cases, women can actually miss the fact that they're pregnant for weeks and weeks and weeks and there are cases where that can happen. Yeah. So how do you get pregnant? So I think the best way to start with us, how do you get pregnant? Is this so a birds and a bees thing? Cause I never got yeah. this talk from my parents. They were too scared. I had to yeah. look it up online and there was no internet in those days. <laughs> so how does one get pregnant? I get to have this conversation all the time and it's a really fun conversation. Um, so most people and that's very loose, right? A menstrual cycle can vary in time, but we presume a 28 day cycle, which is four weeks on average, you're going to ovulate some in the middle of that. So like day 14, um, you have sex within that fertile window. So let's say you're trying to get pregnant. You have sex within that like fertile window. Sperm can survive a long time. Um, so you've got about like four to five days before you ovulate. And then like a day or two after you ovulate, right? So you've got about a week. Um, so even somebody who's using like the rhythm method or, um, like timed intercourse, you can still kind of miss that and end up with a pregnancy. Um, so you're going to get pregnant halfway through that period, the way we date a pregnancy. So if you hear somebody say, oh, I'm six weeks pregnant, we date the period or we date the pregnancy from the first day of the last menstrual period. Mm -hmm. So the first, when you are two weeks pregnant, you're actually not pregnant. You just ovulated. And the sperm mm. just got into the egg and then it's headed to the uterus. So when you're four weeks pregnant, so that's two weeks after your ovulation and kind of when someone's about to be like, oh, I'm late. Um, that is when about when you're going to have a positive pregnancy test, assuming a normal pregnancy. Yeah, so, so sorry, how many, how many weeks was that again? That's four weeks pregnant. Four weeks. Okay. So some of these states do have... Um, gestational age bands that hit around, or they call them heartbeat bands that hit at around six weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you are paying attention to your cycle and you're somebody who's like timing your periods and checking your temperature and checking ovulation, and you're going to like do your, um, pregnancy tests, like that very first day, it's probably going to be positive. You're going to catch that positive pregnancy test when you're about four weeks pregnant. So if you're in a state like Texas with a heart, you know, we're, we're looking at heartbeat from that date until when you're going to see a heartbeat on a, on an ultrasound. And when we say heartbeat, it's kind of a misnomer. The heart's not really formed at six weeks. It's more like there's cells that beat in concert. So it's mm -hmm. more like car, like electronic cardiac, elect, like cardiac activity that you're seeing, um, that that's gonna six weeks is when you see that. So if you're actively tracking your cycles and you take a pregnancy test and you figure out you're pregnant at four weeks, you have two weeks. And if you're, I don't know, like if you're somebody like me, you have a full-time job, you have three kids, like good luck, like figuring something out in two weeks. Um, 
So that's kind of how pregnancy dating works. Now, what are situations where like, you might not know you're pregnant. Um, so there's a very common, uh, condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and basically what that is, is it's where you have this trio of, um, like elevated testosterone, um, this hyperinsulinemia in some patients and anovulation. So you don't ovulate. And so what can happen for people with polycystic ovarian syndrome is you might go six months without a period, um, which you shouldn't do. And you should see your OBGYN if that's the case, but you should might go six weeks without a period and not, not know that you ovulated somewhere and they're conceived and you might not find out you're pregnant until you go to the emergency department with abdominal pain or with like constipation or something. Right. Uh-huh. Um, or you might be at the doctor and they do a pregnancy test because you should probably be doing a pregnancy test on a reproductive age woman. She's seeing you in your office. Um, your doctor does a pregnancy test and they're like, Oh, you're positive. You're positive. You put an ultrasound on and you have like a 16 week fetus. Wow. So, and, wow. and, it's really common. and, and PCOS is increasingly common actually. And, and especially in women of South Asian descent, mm-hmm. uh, I actually had Dr. Ron Sinha on the show. We were talking about this. It's very, very common. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that then you could be in an advanced state of pregnancy and not even know that you mm-hmm. had ovulated, let alone conceived, let alone right. gotten pregnant, let alone advanced this, right. um, that that's, and again, that gets to the, the bioethics of now. Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also want to hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at ZDogMD.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. There's the bodily autonomy of the mom mm-hmm. who is an independent actor. But mm-hmm. then how do you think about when people will say, well, but this fetus also has some autonomy in theory, how do you, how do you think about that in, in your own conception of this in terms of the bioethics of mom versus fetus and so yeah. on? Um, I think that that is a really, really challenging question. And for me as a provider, I think of my job as taking care of my patients' physical and emotional needs. Um, and in my, in my state, you know, we, we don't do terminations past by it. So when we say viability, that is 
sort of an infant's ability to be resuscitated outside of the uterus. And actually that gets into problems in people who have very highly desired pregnancies and they want everything done. If there's a problem, like the 15 week, you know, mm. cervical insufficiency patient that we talked about, but, um, I, I also think of my job as, as trying to be a passive non-judgmental person, like actor in somebody's story. So it's, it's not my job to work that out for my patients. It's my job to emotionally and medically support them. Um, and there are situations where, you know, the choice I would make for myself or the choice I would hope that my patient would make is very different. Um, and that's okay because I'm not living their life and their story. And I don't know what thing, what things they have acting on them and in, in, out in their outside life. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's a little bit that gets into like our trauma-informed care model, right? Like people come to us with all kinds of stories and baggage, and it's not our job to sit down and figure out like, oh, well, were you raped? Because it's okay for you to have an abortion if you were raped. Oh, were you abused? Or are you in a domestic violence situation? Like, that's not my job to, I mean, it's my job to screen for those things, but if they don't want to tell me that, that's okay. It's, it's my job to say you, whatever your story is, is your story. And I I'm here to support you and give you the resources you need. Um, so that's kind of how I approach things. And if there is a situation where I don't feel comfortable, I have excellent colleagues that I can refer to. Um, and I think that that for physicians who don't provide abortion care, it's okay. Like there's some I have excellent, amazing, compassionate colleagues who don't provide abortion care and that's okay, but they, they know that they can refer. It, it's a, such a nuanced thing mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and where it becomes less nuanced is when it's legislated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's when all that, all that nuance goes away because there's yeah. no longer a choice in that matter at all. Yeah. Um, one quick thing, I think I hear something binging. Is that your computer or mine? Oh, my, sure. my computer. I tried right. to put on do not disturb, but I, I'm like, Illiterate. You know what? Do not disturb is a scam. I'm just it telling you people, everybody's watching. It's a total scam. You put it on and then people are still blowing up. Like they can still FaceTime you. Mm -hmm. Like I was doing a talk in, in Dallas the other day and I had the thing on do not disturb and the phone's blowing up the whole time mm -hmm. I'm doing the talk. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, it, it, the thing is I'm conditioned. I don't know. When I was a resident, I had mm -hmm. a whole thing. If I ever got paged, no matter what. And I told my house staff, the other house staff and everything. And when I was in attending, I still did this. Anytime the pager would go off, I would have to do the robot. It was <laughs> compulsory. So if it went, doo, 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 the thing would go off, I would just stop whatever I was doing. It doesn't matter if it's in a mm -hmm. code. It just doesn't matter. You got to do the robot. And that's my choice. We're talking yeah. about choice here. Yeah. That was my choice. So yeah. back, <laughs> back to this actually very heavy stuff. Um, the, so Walk me through, and, and, and there's a couple things we should touch on. Well, one is, what would happen if, if again, we had a, a ban on, on elective pregnancy termination? How would that affect your, the practice in the women that you see? And we can go through some clinical scenarios. Yeah. And the second thing is, I, let's do this first, because I, I can't believe people still think this is a thing. Oh, Re-implanting yeah. ectopic pregnancies. So yeah. that is What is an ectopic? Walk, walk, walk me through this. Um, okay. So in case anyone was confused, you cannot grow a pregnancy in the fallopian tube. Cannot. It does not work. It will rupture. You'll hemorrhage and die. By the way, I just want to stop you right there. 
you did a thing just then that I want to point out. You said the fallopian tubes and you yeah. did an impression of the fallopian tubes <laughs> that was stunning. As a dancer, <laughs> um, I, I, a fellow dancer, I compliment you. I do use the pole. You do not. Yes. So <laughs> back, back to ectopic pregnancy, which is an implant. Tell us what yeah. this is. So an ectopic pregnancy, so when I, when I talk to patients about pregnancy and usually they'll come in, they'll have some kind of vaginal bleeding. And I have to say like, listen, this is either a normal pregnancy inside the uterus. And when I say normal, I mean a pregnancy that's going to grow into a baby. It's an abnormal pregnancy inside the uterus, which is, a, which is a pregnancy that for whatever reason is not going to grow into a baby and will eventually miscarry. And then there's an abnormal pregnancy outside of the uterus, which is a pregnancy that's not only not going to grow into a baby, but also can like kill you. Um, and there's different kinds of ectopic pregnancy. And I think that that's another thing that gets into this like legislative difficulty. Um, the most common ectopic pregnancy is one in the tube. Um, and you can sometimes see an embryo or a fetus with a heartbeat in the tube. Um, usually it's, it's more subtle than that. And sometimes we have to follow labs and do all this stuff to figure out that it's an ectopic pregnancy, but either which way it's not a viable pregnancy. It's never going to be a baby. It, it's not, it's not possible hemorrhage and die that that's kind of full stop, full, full stop. stop. Just to clarify, you cannot give birth no. to that as a viable no. entity. You yeah. cannot not in the tube. Um, and so what eventually happens is that tube gets stretched and like the fallopian tube, there's these blood vessels that run right underneath. And then that goes down and you have your uterine artery. This is my uterus. You have your uterine artery next to your uterus and those little lovely blood vessels under there eventually like can tear. Um, pregnancies are very vascular. They kind of like to grow into whatever they're trying to attach to. Um, and so we can get some bleeding or hemorrhage and death. As I mentioned, you can hemorrhage and die with an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and so what you do, what happens if someone has an ectopic pregnancy? So option number one, if they meet certain criteria, you can actually give them medication um, called methotrexate. And then you have to follow their pregnancy hormone levels down to zero. And that is a non-surgical option to treat this non-viable pregnancy that will never be a baby that's in the tube. Um, some people don't meet criteria for methotrexate or they don't want methotrexate. Um, and then we do surgery. Um, when you do surgery, there's a couple options. So we try and we offer something called salpingostomy. Um, so that is where, if this is your tube, you make an incision on the tube, um, and you use, um, some fluid to kind of try to dissect the pregnancy away from the tube. So you're now you're detaching the pregnancy from the tissue it's latched onto, right? So you're essentially devascularizing that pregnancy. And then you're getting the pregnancy out of the tube. You're crossing your fingers and hope it doesn't bleed and it's not too shredded. Um, sometimes that's not possible. And then, or the patient doesn't want that. Um, and then you can also do a salpingectomy, which is where you actually just take the whole tube with the ectopic pregnancy inside of it. So you're still devascularizing the pregnancy because you're cutting it off from the blood supplied to the tube. So let's just pretend that we would try to reimplant that non-viable pregnancy. That's never going to be a baby. Um, what you would conceivably have to do is then go vaginally dilate the cervix. And then I guess you would take that pregnancy that you've devascularized and shove it up into the uterus. Um, and by the way, it's probably not sterile, right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then cross your fingers and hope that it attaches and then turns it like that's not it's it's, nothing. Ha, has it ever been done in the history of medical science? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, me neither. No. Um, Got it. REI, so IVF, where you create an embryo and you have like the little clump of cells. And I'm not an REI, so REIs, please forgive me. I'm going to butcher this. Um, but you have your embryo and then they are very careful and they put it just so in the uterus and they are very fastidious people. And that, but that stage of that embryo is before it would have implanted in the uterus. So that's why that works and the ectopic pregnancy thing does not. Does not. And and so when a woman is diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy, they might've assumed uh, they had a positive pregnancy test. They might've assumed they're legitimately pregnant. It might've mm -hmm. been a wanted pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And then to find this out is probably, I imagine you handle it akin to a, a spontaneous miscarriage or an abortion yeah. with complications. Yeah, it must be some yeah. counseling and and difficulty. Yeah. And, and some people, you know, everybody's different. And I have patients who will really grieve a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy as a loss of a whole person, right? They're, they're grieving that as if they lost, you know, a person that they know. Um, and they are right. They're grieving a whole future and a whole world that they're imagining with this baby. And now they're finding out that sometimes in very dramatic fashion with an ectopic, they're finding out that this is not going to happen anymore. Um, and that kind of, that counseling takes a lot of care and, and we have support groups and we now have people on social media who speak out about this more, but that's a real emotional loss for that person. Um, and so even to have this like misinformation, I hate using that word, but <laughs> even to have like this information out there from a politician, who's not a doctor and didn't go to OBGYN residency telling people this thing that gives them, I mean, some of these people that's hope, right. Um, really sucks and it makes my job harder, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it's unconscionable. Um, so, so that, that's where I get very passionate about this because I, I actually, you know, sitting in this kind of alt middle position and seeing everybody's sort of moral matrix around abortion is one thing. And I can see that. And I, and I actually intuitively understand that. I think the, where where it becomes problematic is where I see the medical science too, and I see the other emotional aspects of it, where yeah. people who have no business uh, legislating it or being in a position to legislate it are actually causing harm to others. Yeah. They're actually not allowing this um, this moral reasoning to occur uh, with in between woman, doctor, family, uh, you know, their conscience, all of that. It, it's yeah. just it's literally aborting that process of. Un unfoldment of how we how we think about things because like you said like the loss of a of a planned and desired pregnancy has a very different valence than you know an unplanned potentially dangerous all the things we talked about where now the choice is you know what this is actually the aut autonomy of the mother and the health and safety and and mental well-being can you can you speak about a pre you know peripartum depression and things like that in unwanted pregnancy is there data on that yeah. So, um, I mean, first of all, so there are some good studies that in women or people who choose abortion long-term, they, there's less mental health consequences. So ACOG has in one of their policy statements that, you know, when you look at, at people, most of them afterwards will say, you know, I felt, I feel like that was the right choice for me, not everybody. And even if it's, 
the right choice for them in retrospect. I mean, there's still a lot of emotional um, nuance with that. I can't tell you how many hands I've held, like while someone's going to sleep and they're tear, like it's, it's not an easy decision for some, for some people. Right. Um, so in terms of maternal mental health, so one of the risk factors for peripartum mood and anxiety disorders, and, you know, we're talking like 15% of people after pregnancy, um, suffer from some kind of peripartum mood and anxiety disorder. And one of the risk factors for that is an unplanned pregnancy. And so when I, and when I talk to, when you talk to patients, there's unplanned pregnancy. So again, 45%, um, and then there's undesired pregnancy or someone who's not wanting to continue that pregnancy. And those are two separate things. Mm-hmm. So when people who have an unplanned, but they are choosing to continue the pregnancy, that's still a risk factor for peripartum mood and anxiety disorders. And then I imagine in these states where now that option is taken away, that's going to be even more of a risk factor. And so, and this area is really my, my love, um, but we don't have adequate resources for this in my state, in my patient population. And I think we have like pretty good compared to some of my other colleagues I've talked to around the country. Um, we don't have good resources. We don't have support enough support groups. We don't have enough social workers. We don't have enough therapists. We don't have enough psychiatrists. Like me getting a patient into a psychiatrist is a nightmare. Um, and so we don't have the resources set up to support these women, regardless of, you know, what their situation is in getting to where they are having this baby that, you know, whether or not it was planned, we don't have the resources to set up to support them. So, so maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but it seems like if you take away a person's agency, their ability to actually make, because you said you can have an unplanned pregnancy that you still choose to, you know, uh, uh, have, and that itself is associated with some, maybe an increased uh, peripartum, mm-hmm. postpartum depression or anxiety or mental um, health issues. But now if somebody comes in and says, well, okay, now, okay, you had an unplanned pregnancy, you have no choice but to deliver this baby to term and then make a decision what you want to do. Well, that, that changes the dynamic quite a bit. Now you've amped up the potential risk, I think, of those mental health issues. And then with zero support right. <laughs> from, yeah. from any, and, yeah. And we don't have data on that just yet, right? Because up until right. recently, this was generally an option. Um, right. And, you know, I might be missing, to, I haven't done like a thorough review on that, but right. Um, I imagine that this is something we're going to see in, it's already something that's increasing. And I imagine it's something we'll see increasing more. Um, And you have to think like in the postpartum year, um, about 20% of maternal deaths are either suicide or overdose. Mm. So Mm. again, it's a life-threatening issue. Right. Um, And again, again, it's that tension between if your belief is that, you know, the fetus is a, is absolutely a life from conception until uh, that tension versus the mom's life and, and her autonomy and her body and so on. And that's why it's a difficult thing, which you yeah. understand clearly. And, but again, that, that the legislative component just makes it that much more difficult. Um, yeah. And, and then you know, when we talk about life-threatening, right? So how, like, how do you define that? So if somebody comes in and they say, I just Mm. found out I'm pregnant 
I'm in mental health crisis. I don't think I can continue this pregnancy. I'm having suicidal ideation with a plan. Um, is that life-threatening? Right. No. If somebody has a history of non-recovered cardiomyopathy, so non-recovered peripartum cardiomyopathy, so um, cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of maternal death in our country right now, right? So if someone has non-recovered cardiomyopathy, which means that they had a, a weakening of their heart muscle in and around the pregnancy or the postpartum period, and then that heart muscle didn't recover, their risk of death for their, for that subsequent pregnancy is quite high. Um, and so when you say life threat, when the legislation says life threatening, does it need to be she's septic and she's about to die? Does it need to be, she's in total heart failure or does it need to be, is it 20% chance of death, 50% chance of death? Like, wait, like what, how, how sure do we need to be? She's going to die before we intervene. I don't think any of the laws say so. Um, this is the this this is the stuff that you don't you know when they talk about this it's it's it seems like everybody's factioned into a very extreme camp on this either well at least on, on, let, let let me be clear not everybody everybody in online or in the media has factioned into either you know abort them if you got them or you know uh, uh, do not. It's a complete ban on it. And what you're missing is all this medical nuance that you're that you're pointing out, which is why I think I really wanted to do this conversation with you because that that's what people don't understand. Like, what about that situation? And you know, and, and this is the thing, we're talking about moral injury for physicians too. Like, if you make the decision and a court of law decides that you made the wrong decision based on the law, even though you were trying to do the right thing for that patient, you can go to jail. Yeah. So, and yeah. Yeah. So that's like a nut. So back to our, what our 14 weeker with the cervical incompetence, let's say it's that same clinical picture. She has a dilated cervix. There's membranes in the vagina. We can't do a cerclage and her white count is 25, but maybe she doesn't have a fever yet. Maybe she doesn't have fungal tenderness, but you, you know where this is going. So her white counts 25. Is that life threatening enough? And if you're the physician and you're in a state, like I think Georgia, their trigger laws, it gives like an embryo personhood. You can be, I think there's some of these laws that you can be charged with murder as a physician. Mm. I'm a, I'm a single income family. I have three children to support, you know? And so now you're in this position where you know what the right thing to do is, and you can counsel the patient on the right thing on like what the medically the safest thing to do is. And again, that not might not be her choice and that's fine. Um, but that, that creates this horrible gut-wrenching feeling as a physician where you, you can't intervene to help this patient and you are prevent. And even like the counseling and the emotional support you're able, able to provide on her, provide to her is kind of messed up. Um, and so it, it's rather heartbreaking and terrifying at the same time. And again, it has, let just strip that away from whatever you think about abortion. Like that's going to put physicians in a very difficult place because you're talking about saving a mom's life and actually potentially going to jail because a legislator felt that, or a judge felt that you've made the wrong medical decision. I mean, that's really not cool. 
Yeah. And, and that's, that's what really, again, you know, from the beginning when I've been talking about it, it's been about, you can't legislate this stuff. It yeah. really has to be physicians and patients and cahoots making these yeah. decisions. But the more we know about the medical issues around it, I think the more people can make at least educated decisions when they go to the polls and vote for politicians <laughs> who are making these claims. Yeah. Um, t- tell me a little about the medical pregnancy termination options. Um, because that's another huge misunderstanding is, you know, uh, mifeprestone, RU486, these kind of things, morning after pill, what's the difference? Like, how do these things work? Um, so I think the first thing to understand is the morning after pill is not an abortion pill. So the morning after pill is going to prevent you from ovulating. It's not going to prevent an already fertilized pregnancy from implanting in the uterus. And that's kind of like with my patients, like I talk to them about the morning after pill, but I also tell them like, listen, Ideally, this is not your like primary form of birth control because it doesn't really work that well as like a primary form of birth control, right? It's like a, the condom broke. We forgot to use the condom, like cats out sperm, right? Sperms in the sperm is traveling up to where the egg's going to be. We know from earlier in our conversation, sperm can live a long time. It's just preventing the ovary from releasing that egg and getting fertilized. Right. So that's plan B. So, you know, legislating plan B because you think it's an abortion pill, like is just not really based in logic or fact. That's just Um, straight up nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And let let me reiterate. So if you've already ovulated and you have sex and the sperm are going up there, plan B isn't going to do anything. It's not going to abort that, that, uh, uh, um, what's it called at that point where embryo. The the blastocyst. Yeah. It's like, yeah forms and then it's a blastocyst and gets fertilized and it travels down the tube and goes, yeah, if that's happened what, already, like it's not. What, so what, when, when's my boy a zygote? Cause I forget. <laughs> I like that term zygote. I have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I have to know that for my oral words. I can't remember. <laughs> I, it, it matters not a, not a lick clinically, but I just love the word zygote. I, I, I it just sounds it. like a metal band from the eighties, you know? I know. But, well, Zygote, Zygote, it's like some great alliteration too. So. Oh yeah, that's, that's right. Um, so. Um, so anyway, so, so back so to medical B. termination of pregnancy. Yes, so, yeah. so that's plan B, right? Plan B is there's some sperm up in there. I really don't want to really snag and get pregnant. Then there's Mifepristone. So this is another situation where the legislation gets really challenging because Mifepristone initially we're using this as for part of a medication termination, which we'll kind of talk about turns out and it's progesterone antagonist, which means it like blocks the progesterone receptors. Turns out it works really well for other things like medical management of a miscarriage. So if I have somebody who comes to me and they're really excited about their pregnancy and they're like, have their partner there and they're FaceTime with mom and they're so happy. And then I put the ultrasound in and there's a fetus and no heartbeat, right? So that's a missed abortion or a miscarriage. It's still in the uterus. One of the things I will offer to them. So expectant management, medication management is mifepristone followed by mesoprostol, the same dosing and regimen that we would use for a medication termination, but now we're using it to help a person pass their non-viable pregnancy so that they don't have to have a procedure. And it turns out when you look at the studies using mifepristone in that circumstance decreases the chance that she's going to have to go to the OR for a procedure or Mm -hmm. into the office for like an MBA and a very uncomfortable awake procedure. So 
when you are now creating legislation around this medication that's used for other things besides termination of pregnancy, you're also making it a lot harder for me to treat my patient who just found out that that pregnancy that she's already in her head, like designing her nursery and she's like texting her mom and her sister. And she's so excited that person's also suffering because of that. Um, for medication termination, it's a really great option, um, because you don't have to go to the OR or have a, you know, mildly to moderately to very, depending on the situation, uncomfortable procedure awake. Um, and you're not needing now, you know, if you go to the OR, you need a COVID test, you have risk of anesthesia, you know, all of this stuff. Um, so it's, it's basically, you can use mifepristone and mesoprostol for pregnancy termination from basically when you, we find out you're pregnant up until 10 weeks of pregnancy, 10 weeks, um, yeah, 10 weeks. Um, and that's based off of, you know, the ACOG guidelines. Um, I know that there's some organizations that I think will say you can do it up to 11 weeks in my practice. I go up to 10 weeks with medication termination. Then I, that after that it's uh, procedure, um, but what, what that allows is it's a, a pill in the office. It's a, four pills, um, either in the cheek or in the vagina, 24 to 48 hours later, 12 to 48 hours later, depending on how you take it. Um, and then essentially it feels like a miscarriage. It feels very natural. Um, it's 95 to 98% effective. That's very safe. Um, and so that's med that would be a medication termination. Um, that medication turns out now for mifepristone, we're also using it for people who've had a fetal demise. So for people who have a vi now a viable pregnancy where they're into the, their third trimester um, and they find out that the baby has died inside. Um, now there's some literature supporting the use of mifepristone to help kind of like speed up that process of helping her to deliver that pregnancy. I see. Um, so. so you don't have to do a, a, a surgical procedure. You can have a birth of the, of the stillborn fetus. Is that the technical term? Is it stillborn at that point or? Yeah, stillborn. We call it an intrauterine fetal demise, but, Got it. um, and then depending on the gestational age, you can either do a surgical procedure or sometimes you, it's actually much safer to induce labor depending on right. gestation, but. And it, it's such a, I mean, again, it's such an emotional and traumatic thing. It can be because you're, you know, this was a desired pregnancy and you're yeah. delivering, you know, stillborn fetus, but but so mifepristone can potentially now is being looked at even to help with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a really great medication that improves patient outcomes outside of pregnancy termination. So we're talking about legislating it out of existence is probably not the most scientifically valid uh, no. approach a legislature could use. No, not um, evidence-based. Kind of I'm, I'm gonna get my pitch in here. Kind of like mandating masks for a two-year-old, but what do I know? Nothing. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get my. Yeah, it's so funny because everyone's like, "Oh no, COVID! Wow, don't tell me how to do my job." And I'm like, "Dude, they told me how to do my job like forever." <laughs> <laughs> it's really again, it gets to autonomy, right? It gets mm -hmm. to autonomy. Like I always when I when I do my talks now, I talk about when when you want to do if you're in a service industry, which mm -hmm. I hate to say this, but we are as mm -hmm. physicians, we're serving others. There are three things you need to do your job well, to feel capable to do your job and to have good outcomes and to have uh, all of that. One is tools, which is technology and, and gadgets. The mm -hmm. second is teams. So the mm -hmm. kind of support, the training and the teams that support you. 
And the third is trust, which mm -hmm. is another way of saying autonomy, saying latitude yeah. to, to do what we do. And what this legislation in general, these legislative approaches to uh, women's health, they take away the trust component, yeah. they take away tools, and uh, that, that hobbles people's ability to do, to do medicine. Um, yeah. now, now, one thing I think we didn't mention was, what if you took a drug, a medication that actually, and then you found out you were pregnant and you were already on this medication, and that medication puts the child at, the, the fetus at extreme risk for deformities, mm -hmm. terrible outcomes, et cetera, and uh, you know, like what's what's a good one? Accutane, isotretinoin. Really mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so this act it's an acne medication, and young right. women may take that. Right. And they're supposed to take birth control and all that. But what's your experience with this? Yeah. So I fortunately have never had a patient become pregnant while taking Accutane. Um, I take care of a lot of patients who are on Accutane. Um, and I used to be a medical assistant for a dermatologist. So I used to do the other side of this. But... That's why your skin's so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also like the thing on zoom that makes you look like look better. <laughs> I, I need that thing. I had yeah. to have Logan design a custom beauty filter for me <laughs> that makes me look 30 years older than my state of age. But anyways, that's what I need. I need like some gray hair. So people aren't like, are you a medical student? I'm like, no. <laughs> people love the gray uh, people in medicine. It's the only field where looking older is an advantage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what we're saying, Accutane. Okay. So Accutane. Accutane, if you're taking Accutane, you basically need to have two form, be using two forms of birth control. So that can be like a pill and condom. I mean, usually it's like a pill and condom or IUD condoms, whatever. And you have to like sign a thing. And this is, I was a medical assistant, like a long time ago, filling out these forms with patients. So if it's changed, I'm sorry, like, please correct me. But, um, Anyway, you have to show that you're using like some form of birth control. Um, does, and so, does pull and pray count? No. <laughs> <laughs> does not. <laughs> they get out before they, they can get out before the full orgasm. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> They're really tiny and fast and live a long time. <laughs> So no to ixnay on the pull and pray. All right, good to know. Pull and pray. That is it may have been it may have been my own personal soul form of birth control in my entire life, but I, but again, it may have been. This is all theoretical. You have two beautiful uh, children, right? I do have two children. <laughs> I mean, what I tell patients if they tell me that that's their option, my question to them is, how much of a disaster would it be if you became pregnant? Yeah. And if the right. answer is it would be a total disaster, I say maybe we should talk about some other options. There you go. Um, if they say, no, I mean, it would be fine. I don't not really right now. It's not a great time. If I became pregnant, it's cool. Okay, great. Pull and pray. Great. Fine. You do you. Um, but yep. if you're on a medication like Accutane that causes birth defects, not a great option. Not um, a good idea. Even birth control pills. Like I tell my patients, I'm like, listen, I can't take a pill every day. Like I would have eight kids if I was on birth control pills. Um, so some people that's not a good choice because they can't remember to take a pill every day. Well, um, what are, what are some, what are some other medications that you get concerned with in pregnancy where you've had to counsel women who've been on them and now they've gotten pregnant. And again, if you take away the option for pregnancy termination, you're potentially telling a woman that she's got to deliver a, a baby that could have serious harm uh, upon it from these medications. Yeah. So I think that that's a really good like space to get into also like maternal anxiety. Right. So mm -hmm. I have patients who 
were taking, you know, they had like two sips of alcohol from when they ovulated until when they found out they're pregnant and they're losing their minds. Right. Yeah. Which the baby's going to be fine. It's going to be yeah. fine. It's okay. Um, and then I have patient, then there's like the theoretical patient who's on Accutane or somebody who has poorly controlled diabetes. So a very common thing that we see, right. Hemoglobin A1C of 10 or above you have a 10% risk of birth defects. Mm, that's okay. huge. And huge. How, how, and there's so many diabetics poorly controlled out there. Right. Uh, and again, it becomes an equity issue because often in, in socioeconomic uh, groups, social determinants of health that lead to that mm-hmm. poor care, uh, poor diet, poor nutrition, poor access to exercise okay. and nutrition. They can't afford their insulin. Right. Right. So I, right. like this week, I've had patients who have to tell me it's either insulin or healthy food for my kids. Right. So, um, they can't afford their insulin. Um, people who are diabetic also have, you know, increased risk of renal disease, increased risk of like vascular disease, cardiac problems, eye problems, all of those things get worse in pregnancy. Um, but any, it's not a medication, but that's a really good example of something where there's something going on with your body. That's going to affect the baby. So if you have an unplanned pregnancy, all of a sudden you're in the situation where something that you did is affecting the baby and it's not your, it's not your fault. Right. But that's how a lot of women are going to feel. Um, and so taking away that option for them is, is not only difficult from like a health perspective, right. But an inequity perspective, but also from an emotional perspective. And, and um, a, a, another example might be you were diagnosed with cancer and are, uh, and then become pregnant or, or vice versa. And yeah. now you have to choose between, do I get chemotherapy and treatment that would injure this baby? Or do I have a pregnancy termination and save my own life potentially? So yeah. again, it becomes that difficult it situation. Becomes, yeah. And, and, you know, even, I mean, you'd be surprised at how many chemotherapeutic drugs you can get when you're pregnant and there's protocols mm. for that. Mm. Um, but there's, and there's certain drugs that you can't get and you certainly can't get pelvic radiation therapy, right? Um, but you're having to choose there's some cancers where maybe the standard of care and the thing that's going to make your outcome the best is to get pelvic radiation therapy and delaying that treatment. Because the other time, like when do people who don't have access to healthcare access a doctor when they become pregnant? Mm. Um, and so we pick up cervical cancers, we pick up breast cancers, we pick up undiagnosed diabetes, we pick up and, you know, untreated, um, depression, anxiety, mental health concerns. Like we pick all these things up sometimes with the pregnancy, um, but back to cancer. So you might, you might be able to get treated, but you might not be able to get the thing that's going to optimize your health the most. So is it going to put your life at risk during the pregnancy? Maybe not. Is it going to shorten your life and maybe your five-year survival likelihood of five-year survival number? Is that going to decrease? Yeah, maybe. Um, and then, you know, the other, like, um, the other component of that is you need like a highly specialized team to take care of you if you're a pregnant person with cancer. So again, at my institution, I'm very lucky. We have maternal fetal medicine. We have awesome oncologists. We have awesome like radiation oncologists. We have all of that at our institution. And if we have a patient who is pregnant with cancer, we can get her in and get her going really fast. But if you're in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma, 
it, you're going to, you're delaying care for that cancer. And it might be more efficacious for you to have a pregnancy, like a medication termination, and then proceed with your chemotherapy or your radiation therapy or whatever. And again, that's taking a huge component of bodily autonomy away from a person. Um, I think that if you have cancer, you should be able to choose to get the standard of care treatment for that cancer if you want it. Um, yeah. 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 And, and these are, these are key points that I think, again, they're glossed over when the media talks about this issue. It's just, again, polarized into black and white. Whereas there's this nuance that, uh, you guys on the front lines caring for these women actually understand better than anybody. And, and, uh, you know, so a question then maybe that might bring us full circle here is, is how would we in an ideal world where we want to prevent unwanted pregnancies, pregnancy termination, uh, et cetera, how would we do that? Yeah. So, I mean, where does that start, right? It starts with education. So right now we have terrible sex ed in our schools. Um, I know this because I get to talk to some middle schoolers and high schoolers periodically and the things they, things they believe about sex and getting pregnant are insane. Um, and the things we believe about birth control are insane. <laughs> so like, like, like what, like, is it either abstinence or pull and pray? Cause that was my, that was my teaching. Yeah, I, I grew up in I the know, Reagan era. I had a lot of teenagers be like, oh, well, I'm not going to go on birth control pills until I am in a relationship where I don't want to use condoms anymore. And I'm like, no, 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 please don't do that. <laughs> like, what? use the birth control pills. The condoms are like best, like 85 ish percent effective. They're not that effective. Um, use the condoms and the birth control pills. Um, also prevention of sexually transmitted infections, right? Like also condoms great for that. Also, we talk to people about prep, like there's a lot of education that's not happening because of legislation. And I understand people are like, Oh, you shouldn't have sex before marriage, blah, blah, blah. I grew up part of my life in Mississippi, I can tell you even like very religious people, some of them still have sex before they're married. Um, and you know what? It doesn't mean that you're going to have sex right away. Maybe you save that information until you're married. If you feel strongly about that and you don't want to get pregnant right away because you're in medical school or you're trying to buy a house or whatever. Um, but education first, right. And then the next one is easy, affordable and accessible effective birth control, easier said than done. And places like Planned Parenthood are awesome for that. Like when I was in, where was I college in between college and, and when I was out in the world as a young adult, I had no health insurance because this was pre Obamacare. Where do you get birth control? You go to Planned Parenthood. Um, where do you get your pap smear? You go to Planned Parenthood. Um, so that right. But we're wanting to defund parent parenthood and we demonize them because they, you know, are and provide abortion care, but they also provide like education and birth control and primary care and social services. And they screen for domestic violence and sexual assault and all these other things. Right. So that, and then good health care, right. So if you want somebody's a bad diabetic, but maybe they really do want to have a healthy pregnancy, you make sure their diabetes is well-controlled before they're pregnant um, or their hypertension is well-controlled before they're pregnant because that obese, diabetic, hypertensive person, when they become pregnant, their risk of worsening of their diabetes, worsening of their probably kidney disease, worsening of the retinopathy, um, 
progression to preeclampsia with severe features, risk of preterm birth, all of those things are much higher when those medical problems aren't controlled. Um, and then if somebody does become pregnant and they choose to continue that pregnancy, but they don't have good social support, you need good social support for those people after, which we don't, right now we don't have any of that. We have zero. Yeah. So zero. we have none. It, it, it's, it's really, okay. So again, America does everything its own way, but it, it's kind of mm -hmm. crazy. We have none of that. None of that at all. Our primary care is crap. We fund mm -hmm. specialty care. We, the social determinants of health drive everything, but we have no social support. Mm -hmm. um, we do not have any kind of uh, equitable access to healthcare at all. But right. now we're going to say, yeah, but you can't, you can't have an elective pregnancy termination in consultation with a doctor. Uh, even if you have all these other problems, you're going to go through this mill. And uh, this, this, look, if if you really if you really believe that this is um, that abortion is a problem morally, then we should morally and ethically do these other things so, right. to make it either unnecessary or not. But as you see, it's it, the word unnecessary doesn't even make sense because there are those medical necessities that we've talked about where right. you, you it, it's always going to have to be in the tool belt of physicians because it's you're talking about a mother's life who's at stake, right? right. So. Um, yeah. And, I mean, and, and I mean, define necessary, right? So I think I forget which state it was. I've been lost. track. I've honestly lost track of all the trigger laws that are going into effect. I had them down like a week ago, but now there's more. <laughs> um, but I know there's one state that just created a trigger law that does allow for rape and incest, but a th only a third of women report rape and the majority of rapes are perpetrated by somebody, you know, mm. um, and a, so do you have to report the rape so that you can have the termination from the pregnancy? And yeah. if you find out you're pregnant after the rape, it's going to be at least two plus weeks. And then you're not going to be able to go report the rape and do the rape kit. And then also we blame women when they do report. So how's that going to work? And, and then the doctor gets it wrong and goes on trial, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so that, that that's where this is all. I mean, and this is where your practice of yoga comes in handy because you're going to need some serious mindfulness yeah. <laughs> the next yeah. few months and years. Are you still practicing? Do you still teach? Um, I still practice. Um, I was the last time I taught a yoga class. I taught when I was a resident to some of my fellow residents, but um, actually with some of my trauma informed care work, I do more like mind, like mini mindfulness um, practice with the residents and with my patients. Um, uh. So yeah, like, I use a lot of mindfulness with my patients actually. So you said trauma-informed care, and this is one of your passions. Can you give us the one-liner on that? Okay, so the one-liner is- it's more It can be one. more than one line. <laughs> so trauma-informed care is number one, recognizing that trauma is common um, and most people are gonna under-report, right? Um, so trauma is common. A history of trauma. And when I say trauma, I don't just mean like you've been raped, right? I mean that you're a person of color in America, or you're somebody who's an LGBTQ person in America, or your parents neglected you as a child. Like trauma, many shapes and forms, right? So trauma is common. Um, trauma is going to affect your health, and it's also going to affect the way that you approach healthcare. Um, it's going to affect your ability to have trusting relationships, especially with the healthcare system. Um, it's recognizing that the healthcare system can iatrogenically re-trigger you or re-traumatize you. Um, and it's also recognizing that you can form healing and trusting relationships within the healthcare system. Um, 
So that's like in a nutshell. I mean, we could talk several hours. (laughs) So that's going to be another show because I'm really interested in that because personally, I suffered trauma. I did not get a car when I was 16. And to this day, I consider that an adverse childhood experience. And um, it's the reason I have gout. It's 100% the reason you have the disease. (laughs) I don't have gout, but I've always wanted it. I don't know why. It just feels like a disease of affluence that I've earned, you know? Yeah. Um, No, but in, in all, all joking aside, the, the trauma-informed care thing, I think we really should do a whole nother show on that because especially in women's health, that that is a crucial discussion that many of my audience have asked about. Um, yeah. Some of them are involved in in um, practices around that, but many of them are actually you know victims of trauma, et cetera. And, and so it'd be important to talk about. But I got to say this, Alex, like, is there anything else you want to say about this issue? The trauma-informed care issue or the abortion? Oh, or sorry, the abortion issue, because abortion. Um, I think we did a thing like- yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I think like the big thing to recognize here is that abortion care is something, and this is coming from ACOG, right? So ACOG is like my like boss organization that the American of- college of obstetrics and gynecology. Mm-hmm. Um, so their nonpartisan or- organization, their stance is that abortion care is a part of comprehensive reproductive health care. Um, and that decision should be made by the patient and their provider or their physician and taking all of their health needs once and clinical situation into account and then coming to a decision. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is that you don't have to be a physician who provides abortion to be affected by these laws and issues. You can be a physician who manages miscarriage, who manages adverse pregnancy outcomes. You can be an IVF physician, um, a GYN oncologist, an oncologist, or primary pediatrician. Pediatrician. Yeah. So this is something that it it doesn't just affect people who provide abortion. And most people who provide abortion do other things, right? Um, It affects a lot more physician-patient relationships than we really give it credit for. And Ultimately, what's going to happen with this is it, it's going to take away our ability to provide the standard of care and evidence-based medicine. And that is not safe for patients. That is not safe for physicians from a mental health perspective, from a medical legal perspective. Um, and it's also not good for our society, right? So the people who are going to be most affected by this are people who don't have access to healthcare, people who are poor, people of color, and are already horrible, like maternal outcomes that we have in this country are going to get worse. So that gap where we have a, a woman of color, so a black woman or a woman who's a um, native, uh, I'm going to use the wrong terminology, but American natives and Alaskan natives has a one, three times more likelihood to die from pregnancy than a white person. Over the age of 30, they have a five times more likelihood of dying from pregnancy than a white woman. That's gonna get worse. Um, and it, I think these states with these laws are also gonna suffer a loss of OBGYNs because I know for myself, I couldn't practice in one of those states. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, but I'm hoping that 
we can at least see that there's nuance here. And while I totally feel for people who truly believe that life begins at conception and, and I imagine how heartbreaking it must be to, to feel that and feel that that's truly a death and a loss with every termination of pregnancy. I imagine that must be just gut wrenching. Um, I hope that we can at least see that this is such a nuanced and complicated issue that our politicians are just not really qualified to make rules around. And, and all those things can be true at once and they are, and that's, that's, that, and that's why I'm so grateful that you, you know, if people say, oh man, do you read your comments? And it's like, yeah, I do for this reason that every now and again, there'll be one that is so thoughtful and, and informative and professional that it makes me think, you know what, we should talk. And I'm so glad we got to talk because I think people will learn a lot from this and they can disagree with abortion. They can, but the medical stuff I think is very important to spell out um, because again, it's the nuance that it's very hard for the mainstream media to actually pick up on properly and convey because mm -hmm. there isn't that much time. Yeah. So Alex, so we're gonna come back and I wanna, I wanna come back and talk uh, the next show about trauma-informed care. I wanna talk about maternal mortality and why it's so abysmal in the US, yeah. um, how we can make it better. And I wanna talk about the lady parts, which frankly, I still don't understand. Like this is a fallopian tube. Mm -hmm. I used to think the fallopian tuba was an instrument and the epididophone was also an instrument. So mm -hmm. I'm an equal opportunity, uh, ignorant person when it comes to uh, reproductive organs. I'm just disappointed we didn't say vagina more in this. I really You know am. what? I just, I like to say vag because I think it just, it implies a level of professionalism that others mm -hmm. just lack, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this vagina. There, I said it. Does that make it better? So much better. <laughs> Probably not in that context, but um, guys and gals and non-binary pals, uh, mm -hmm. I really want to thank Alex um, West for being on the show and talking to us. If you like what we're doing to educate, um, please um, share the video, leave a comment about your own experience, your own thoughts about this. Be civil about it. Be persuasive if you want to persuade us of a point use your moral reasoning and make a persuasive point. Don't start throwing feces. Um, and if you really like what we do, support our show like Alex does. Actually, that's how we met. She's a supporter in our supporter tribe. It's like five bucks a month. You can do it on locals.com or Facebook or YouTube. And it helps fund all of this. And we have these really in-depth discussions in a really civil way. Like Alex may have disagreed with the way that Doc Vader went at abortion. And she very politely and professionally wrote back and now we have a conversation. That's, that's, that's just awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I also really love Doc Vader's uh, milk formula crisis video. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you'll appreciate this because I sometimes go hard on the lactation consultants for <laughs> a little bit of shaminess um, because I think my wife suffered through that and was quite emotional about it. Yeah. Uh, a lactation consultant reached out who is also in the supporter tribe and is going to come on the show by zoom to talk about the formula industrial complex. And so we'll get a differing, uh, we'll get a good angle on that and it'll be a good nice. conversation nice. and hopefully I'll learn something. But Doc Vader does not, you know, you know, they, they tried to force Luke and Leia again, Padme's no longer alive. They, they tried to get her force ghost to lactate. I don't know about you, but it's very difficult to suckle on a hologram. I've tried it. 
<laughs> Please forgive me, Obi-Wan. Um, anyways, guys, uh, thank you, Alex, for being a good sport. And <laughs> we are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.